0: Welcome back, everyone, to this two-part special on reparations on equals. This is Nabil, joined by Nadia. And we're going to be asking, what should rich countries do to address their past crimes of colonialism, of slavery? And we left it at a cliffhanger last time, didn't we, Nadia?
1: We really did. I feel like people are... I know, I was on the edge of my seat. Um, so let's not dilly-dally. Let's just get straight onto the rest of our interview with Professor Vereen Shepard. And in case our listeners missed the first episode, please do go back and take a listen, because... Vereen really painted this very vivid picture of the colonial era in the Caribbean and helped us understand how that's translated into the economy and societies in the Caribbean today. And she really made the case for reparative justice.
0: It was a very very moving episode nadia wasn't it? And look some peop- sometimes people say, you know what what does that actually look like? What does reparations practically mean today 's episode seeks to answer that very question we'll be speaking again to Professor Shepard um, who's worked on a plan for reparative justice we 're also really humbled to have Dr. Grieve Chalwa back on the show he 's previously been on equals he's a Zambian scholar and advocate he's a director of research at the Institute of Race Power and Political Economy and he's been somebody who's been working on this issue of reparations.
1: Excellent. Well, let's get straight to it then. I feel like you've really helped us sort of paint the picture here on not only how the harm that, you know, that followed from the colonial era from the slave trading and, um, you know, all of that unpaid labor, the, the violence and how that has shaped what's happening in the Caribbean today. You also showed us how the benefits have trickled down to successive generations of the colonizers themselves. And so not only do you show us why there is the demand for reparations, but also why the case for reparations, um, is, is so strong. And so now I want to get to the how. What does that look like
2: practically? And, and for who? Yes, by the way, there are people and institutions in the UK you know, who are supportive. So it's not everybody who doubts the benefit. There are enough people who yeah. are on our side and I'm really happy about that. Okay, so the CARICOM heads of government established in 2013 a CARICOM reparation commission The commission has come up with a blueprint or a strategy for claiming reparatory justice. It is called the 10-point plan. And here is the 10-point plan. I will just summarize because we don't have time to go into all the explanations, but it begins with a full formal apology. We do not regard a statement of regret that we have been hearing from the royal family in Britain as any apology. That's not an apology. Saying you're sorry or I regret and it shouldn't have happened, that's not an apology. A full formal apology has three dimensions. You accept responsibility, you commit to repair, and you commit to non-repetition. That's what an apology is like. We're still waiting on that. So there's the first point. An indigenous people's development program is the second point. Repatriation to Africa for those who require it. Not everybody wants to go back. Those who want to go back must be funded to go back and settle. We're asking for the building of cultural institutions, we're talking about attention to the public health crisis. We don't have, and this COVID-19, this pandemic has shown us how marginalized we are in terms of our health system. So that's the fifth point. The, the sixth, illiteracy er- eradication, education development. And the next one, an African knowledge program, psychological rehabilitation funds and facilities for that, because slavery, did a job on us. We are still suffering from the psychology of that whole crime. Technology transfers the other one and debt cancellation, debt write-off and monetary compensation is number 10. So even though we say we're not calculating it necessarily in terms of a financial package, we think that it was immoral to pay the planters. And also if we could even go sideways to Haiti, for France to have extracted money from Haiti in reparation. And that money should come back to the region.
0: What's the response been like to this commission of the Caribbean governments that you were a part of? You know, what's the response been like when you say, hey, we've got a 10-point plan?
2: The 10-point plan has been embraced by a lot of other reparation committees, commissions, task forces, and so on. Not just across the caribbean it's widely accepted across the caribbean but it's also accepted in the united states the national african-american reparation commission has embraced it i've been to, to to germany where there are communities of people talking about it so it is it is it is widely accepted but of course you know we're going to have opposing voices you have those who say it's too long in the past but uh If you have not settled a crime in the past, it still continues. There are people who are saying, well, the victims are all dead. But in international law, there is nothing to stop the descendants of those who were harmed by a crime from claiming reparation. So we do have opposing voices, but we also have the justification for why this is a right. A wrong was done, a crime was committed, and those who committed a crime have the right to uh, make amends for such crime. I want
1: to ask you so, so many more questions about this ten point plan, but I know we've only Go got ahead. a finite amount of time. So maybe I'll focus in on a couple of them. Yes. So the first one being more on the financial aspects. So I mean, you know, we've had a few episodes on aid in our, in our previous season actually, and the topic of foreign aid as reparations for the colonial era and the harm done through colonialism came up in a few of our conversations especially in the context of africa i wonder you know when you're thinking about and and when not just you when when you and your colleagues and people working on this are, are talking about monetary compensation is aid in the same framework of that or do you separate it entirely what do you think of the concept of aid as as reparations and then then you mentioned debt cancellation
2: as well i wonder if you can go a bit deeper on that aid is not reparation aid is aid a grant is a grant. I know that former colonizers like to, to speak in terms of aid because they want to feel benevolent to the region. But when you're talking about a right, when you, when you have a case in court, for example, somebody did you a wrong, committed a crime, and you are going to seek compensation in court, the judge isn't talking about aid. The judge will be levying a charge on someone who committed a wrong. So that's what we're talking about, not aid. But I know Europeans like to talk in terms of aid. They like to feel benevolent. They like to treat us like children, as if we're there, you know, so poor and pop down. And it wasn't, it's their fault. No, you committed a wrong. You have a right to repair it. You have to cough up the money to make sure that um, the countries that were harmed are put on a development path. We have a right to development. We don't want your aid. It makes you feel good. And it is temporary. We're talking about reparatory justice, repairing and making amends for a crime that was done through various strategies. And I have just outlined some of the strategies. Debt write-off, debt cancellation, uh, because... Too many of the governments of the region are paying too much out of their dollars to to pay loans from Europeans at, at really high interest rates. You know, if perhaps we wouldn't have needed so many of those loans if we had gotten a compensation package, a reparation package, which our leaders were asking for in the 1950s. And yet, by the way, that some, go look up something called the Colombo Plan, which Professor Hilary Beckles has researched and said when the Eastern countries, when the, when, when the Asian countries ask for reparation, they got it. Some of them got it, but not the Caribbean. And it is racism over on this side because of, of the, the, the racism which is attached to the black skin and because of the chattel enslavement over this side and the way that has come down to affect us. You know, Britain was in Jamaica for 307 years and extracted our wealth and then tell us go develop. That is so immoral, by the way. I
1: also just want to, hear from you on a very maybe personalized basis, you know, for you, Vereen, personally, out of this 10-point plan, you know, we talked about the financial side, but it's so much more than that, clearly. What is most
2: important to you? I think about the benefits of reparation because reconciliation between victims and beneficiaries are possible. is possible, you know? Reparation can restore equity in social relations, equality before the law and justice within the fabric of diversity. And and it can help to heal the wounds of the past. So I am looking also at that, but I'm also looking at how my country, how my region could be better with an injection of capital. Now, remember we are saying we want a development package which will address health and education and the physical infrastructure, agriculture. So my hope is to see a country that is more developed than than what it is now and that can make some leaps and bounds in that regard. And it is personal to me, you know, because I grew up on a former plantation in one of the parishes called St. Mary. It was owned by members of the Hibbert family popular, rich family in the UK. I want reparation for those men and women whose names, by the way, I have researched and gotten from the archives in the UK. These men and women, like Wanika, I want resolution for their pain and what they suffered and what the Hebrews got as compensation. A wrong was committed. A crime was committed. We need a settlement for that crime. But what I see now is a pushback in the United Kingdom. All the gains that were made, I'm seeing a reversal of some of those gains. So many people had come on board. Many of the universities are still studying. But what I don't see is a, a support from the for the Caribbean in terms of lobbying governments and the British Royal Family. So universities and individuals and families, they're studying and they're writing books and they're putting out reports. Where's the advocacy on behalf of the Caribbean? That's what I want to see.
0: Vareen, this speaks to a broader struggle. It speaks to a movement and it's really a global movement as well. Now you've got this role now with the UN. Just to end, you know, where's a movement at? What are you trying to achieve through the UN, for example? Where are things going?
2: Okay, and thank you for mentioning my role at the UN. I'm very excited, very honoured to have been appointed as the current chair of the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. It is a good platform, and the 18 members of this committee are committed People, committed experts working to see if we can put a dent in the existence and the harm done by hate, hate speech, hate actions, racial discrimination in the world. So what we do is to embrace this opportunity to talk with states when they come before us and we will sit down and talk with them about what are they doing in their countries to eliminate racial discrimination. That's our platform. And that's what we're trying to do. And when we when we see extreme cases, we call them out, we write statements, we have webinars. Some people might say the UN doesn't achieve anything, but I say let us embrace whatever chance we get to operate on that global stage. It is a global stage, and I'm embracing it.
1: Varin, thank you. Thank you for your clarity, for, for sharing this important history helping us and our listeners understand the demands and the case for reparative uh, justice and and for equity, for healing the wounds of the past. It's really been an enlightening interview uh, for me and I know for Nabil and and for our listeners. and, And it was a pleasure to have you with us today on Equals.
2: Thank you. May I just end by saying those who want to know more about the roots of the movement, the justification for it and where we're going, There is a book called Britain's Black Debt, Britain's Black Debt, written by Professor Hilary Beckles. And for the children who might be watching, we just put, I am the director of the Center for Reparation Research, as I think you have said, and we have just put out a book called Introduction to Reparation for Schools, you know, so the, the, the young ones can have an understanding of what this is all about. And it's published by the University of the... Both of them are published by the University of the West Indies Press. They're online.
0: People need to be reading those books and not not just learning or, or not learning about Henry VIII, six wives and so on.
2: <laughs> um, you see, we need to we need to ensure that we do have decolonization in our, of our curriculum and that we, we broaden the sources. Nothing wrong with learning British history, by the way, but the people in the UK must learn... That British history is wrapped up with Caribbean history. It's not British history over here, Caribbean history over there. We're intertwined, and the sooner we we understand that, the better we will we will we will be in terms of relating to each other.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Vereen. It's been amazing.
2: You're quite welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Right, Nadia, talk about an episode that hits the heart and moves the mind. I've mm. I've been reading the CARICOM plan that Vereen Shepard took us through. One of the quotes in there hits me, which says, for 400 years, the trade and production policies of Europe could be summed up in the British slogan, quote, not a nail is to be made in the colonies.
1: Oh, that, that is hard hitting. And I mean, you know, one of the things that struck me was just how practical the plan is, right? I mean, here are all the recommendations on how reparative justice could move forward. And we've got lots of reading material uh, as well for after we finish these episodes. But let's shift now continents and get some reflections on what we've heard. It's great to welcome Dr. Grieve Chilwa back onto Equals. Hi, Grieve. Thanks for being with us.
3: Hello, my good friends Nadia and Nabeel. So nice to be on your amazing podcast again. I mean, it. I always have lots of fun.
0: I love it. I love it, grief Let's get talking about reparations, right? And we've heard about the push for reparations, grief from a Caribbean perspective. Can you walk us through, you know, as an economist on the continent, how important is reparations, you know, on the African political agenda? Is is something, is anything happening? That's an important question. I mean, there is, there is
3: some discussion, debate, I think, in informal settings. One tends to hear about repair for the harms that have been done over centuries. But I would say that the debate may not have reached the, the advanced stage that one sees, for example, in the Caribbean or in the CARICOM countries. My work colleague and friend, Derek Hamilton, recently attended a meeting, a conference, I think one of the first kind of conferences of this nature. There might have been many, but one that I'm aware of in Accra, Ghana, where there was an intent to begin to formalize such a debate uh, on the African continent, or even though that that gathering was really for the African diaspora writ large, but uh, Nabil, to answer your question, one doesn't see the level of debate engagement, um, even so, you know the kind of ten point plan that you just discussed in this uh, in, in the run up to this discussion. One doesn't see that on the African continent. What one saw when the Queen died was, quote unquote, in informal settings, right? One sees this active engagement of, you know, right, okay, it's sad that, you know, death is always sad. But there was this sort of folks we're talking about, you know, when are we going to get what is what was stolen from us? Uh, you know, be it actual physical minerals, uh, you know, physical human beings. You know, the fact that counterfactual history would have been in a different kind of place if not for British colonialism, if not for imperialism, if not for the slave trade. So one did see this kind of engagement and debate in informal circles, in informal settings on the continent, if one can call, call it that. But in formal places, like I think the example of African heads of state, right? One also sees lots of them falling over themselves to offer condolences, to travel to the UK and be pu- pushed around in buses. But I think when one goes to the Caribbean, I think one sees a different kind of debate, even at the level of heads of state, in the way that one engages with issues of reparatory justice, issues of reparations. And I'm thinking here about, uh, you know, Her Excellency Mia Motley, for example, one sees a kind of engagement, uh, which yeah. one, one doesn't see on the continent. Yeah.
1: Hmm. It is. And and Prime Minister Motley is really a force to be reckoned with increasingly, I feel, in, in global discussions also about, you know, shifting power, about Neocolonialism in in finance as well. and actually that's something I wanted to ask you about. One of the issues that came up in our interview with Verin was the idea of debt cancellation as a form of reparations. But how does that jive with the framing or or does it does it sit with you in the context of Zambia and its colonial history?
3: I think one has to see the debt crisis or I mean the current iteration of it, but we you know we go through these debt cycles. And I think the reason why we go through these debt cycles is history, right? We were set up to fail in many ways because of history. And that therein is the debt problem. You know, we're always having to, uh, given how we were integrated into the world capitalist system, you know, we rely so much on on natural resources, our, our attempts at industrializing or, you know, getting out of that historical path dependence are often thwarted. And I think from that point of view, it's useful to think about debt cancellation as a form of reparations, but not uh, as the reparations, right? Because, you know, one might say, okay, we've cancelled Zambia's $15 billion worth of external debt now. That's it. We've, we've, we've repaired you. You know, that's it. We've done the rights. We've righted history. Now yeah. we'll go on and get started. But the hurt, quantification of the hurt, I imagine that's a huge incalculable number, right? That's an incredible number.
1: So you say a form of reparations, and and I think that actually um, is consistent even with how Vareen was speaking about it, you know, these things, financial compensation, for example, is one component of a broader broader plan that's laid out. So in your mind, if debt cancellation could be one form of reparations, what are some of the other reparative actions that could be taken for the continent, in your view?
3: I think it's got different components. Certainly... Financial redress is important. Now, here I'm thinking about the South African case, for example, where they had a truth and reconciliation process. So for them, restorative justice focused only on truth and reconciliation, right? So people get together, uh, you know, people own up to the mistakes that they made. Perhaps they say sorry, and then there's some form of reconciliation. But then this did not, was not accompanied by uh, financial redress. And in many ways we see, I mean, it's not controversial to say that one sees this polarization you know in recent parts. I mm-hmm. think it's, you know, one has seen the protests there, one has seen this sort of like there's a lot of animosity that's building up. And I think that's because the process of restorative justice focused on only one aspect, uh, not on, on the other. So I, mm-hmm. I would say this has to be a process of truth and reconciliation, a process of saying, you know, sorry, a process of owning up to some of the harms. Uh, but, in addition to that, we're going to also give um monetary redress. I think that's important and and in that monetary redress, I think there's this part of debt, which I think is a small part of it,
0: yeah, it reminds me grieve of the conversations as well we've had around aid as well and and there's so much we can we can talk about here. but let me ask you this as well, because you know conceptually academically reparations it sounds like something that many people would agree with. But there are also some who think practically it's a pipe dream. It's impossible. It's never going to happen. I mean, why would you know? Why would rich countries ever agree to this? What's your What's your take here? You know, is it is it is it just a pipe dream? Is it is it worth fighting for?
3: I mean, I think it's worth fighting for. Just like many things in history, which were impossible. Until they were possible, he so said, now I'm, par- I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing Nelson Mandela has this widely quoted. I don't know if it's really him or it's mis attributed. I think we
0: can, we can call it a Grieve Chalwa quote if you kind of <laughs> you change it enough.
3: <laughs> I, 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 I never want to, I never fit in the shoes of the great Nelson Mandela. But I think the point I want to make is many things historically have been framed as impossible, right? You know, even independence, the political decolonization at some point was something that folks thought was impossible. And I think something like reparations. I think it's it's going to happen. I, obviously, it's not a given. We have to sort of agitate. We have to organize. We have to mobilize. But I think on both sides, in the north, the global north, and in the south, the people on either on either side who honestly believe in this kind of reckoning, right? We really have to, in many ways, I think about reparatory justice as a way of you know, in some ways, starting afresh to build this kind of society where we all feel like we belong. We have to do the work. We have to do the hard work, and we have to mobilize. We have to keep on. I mean, like what you, what you and and and, and Nadia are doing in this podcast is one way of sending across that message. So I, I think it's, it's it's possible. It's it's within reach. It's within reach, but we have to do the hard work.
1: And and that's a, a hopeful note to end on, and I love the way you frame it on agitation grief because I, I do feel like so much of the work of social justice is is agitating and, until that change happens. And, and that agitation is, is so crucial. But it's so wonderful to have you. Thank you again for taking the time to join us, Grieve. It's such a pleasure to, to speak with you.
0: Massive. Thank you, Grieve. I think we can't have you on the podcast enough, to be honest. <laughs> <So>.
3: <laughs> Nabil and Nadia, it was an absolute pleasure. And again, I'm big fans. I know uh, you, Nabil has heard me say this so many times, but I genuinely, genuinely mean it. I think the world is the better for it for having the two of you in there and uh, and yeah thanks for all that you do
1: thank you thank you for everything you're doing and, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on this two-part special on reparations you can find us on equalshope.org and look out for all of our other episodes to come thank you
0: thanks everyone